0: Um, as you might have guessed, we're going to be talking about prayer, <laughs> specifically the Lord's Prayer. And It's been said that prayer is to the soul what breathing is to the body. It's a natural part of what it is to be a human being that is being created in the image of God and created for an intimate relationship to God, as intimate, as close as the very breath we breathe. The writer, George Bernanos, said that the wish to pray is a prayer in and of itself. And I wholeheartedly agree. But at the same time, have you ever wished that prayer was just a little bit easier? Sometimes. You know, have you ever wondered if you're doing it right? Or if you're getting through to God, or gosh, if God is even getting through to you. Well, if you're anything like me, the answer to all those questions is probably yes. So we could all use from time to time a refresher or reminder about the purpose and the power of prayer and how it brings us close to God. And so that's why for the next six weeks during the season of Lent, uh, Steve Shipstead and I are going to be preaching a series on prayer specifically the lord's prayer which is the the most well-known prayer in the history of the world probably and we'll see how it models for us how to be as people and how to be in relationship with god now one of the first things to realize about the lord's prayer is that there are two versions of it in the new testament So let's look at the first one, which comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, from the 11th chapter. Listen now for God's word to you today. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father... May your name be revered as holy. May your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your world and your word as best as we can this day and every day of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't remember when I first learned the Lord's Prayer. Probably I was a kid and I learned it at church at some point, but I do remember vividly when the Lord's Prayer first became an important part of my life. It was Christmas Eve, I was probably 10 years old, something like that, and I had a terrible stomachache. There's nothing I could do to make it go away. But rather than go to my mom and dad to ask them to help me out, I decided I was going to ask God to help me out. And I didn't really just ask for healing straight out. As a 10-year-old, I kind of made a bargain with God. I promised God that I would say the Lord's Prayer every night for the rest of my life if God would just take away my stomachache. And I gotta say, that seemed like a really fair deal to me. And apparently it seemed like a really good deal to God too because my stomach ache immediately went away and it didn't come back. So I, you know, tried to keep my part of the bargain. I went on and I said the Lord's Prayer every night for the next about 30 years through thick and thin and good times and in bad but then one night I stopped words didn't come I don't know why I guess I guess probably the prayer started feeling more like an empty ritual you know and like I was just going through the motions and that sort of thing can happen to anybody It does happen You see, like everything else, if a spiritual practice becomes routine and feels like it's just nothing important, it can lose its purpose and its meaning in your life. That is, you can know the right words to the Lord's Prayer or whatever by heart, but you really don't know it anymore in your heart or why you're saying it in the first place which puts you in pretty good company because as we hear in Luke's Gospel that's how the disciples felt too the old forms of prayer that they had learned and memorized and practiced as religious Jews for whatever reason weren't working anymore and they noticed every day that Jesus himself would go off to be by himself and he would commune with communion with God he would pray to God and he would come back he would be transformed he would be inspired He would be let loose and empowered to do all the work that was set out for him on that day and the disciples want to know what is he doing that we're not doing so they ask him teach us to pray and notice they don't ask teach us a prayer as if Jesus was going to give them some sort of a secret magical formula that if they just said the right words, that God was going to give them everything they wanted. No. They ask, teach us to pray. And so he does. He gives them in his words a model for how to do it based on how he would pray to God. So let us turn now to the version of the Lord's Prayer we have in Matthew's Gospel, which is. Certainly more familiar to us, Jesus, to put it into context, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. It's about halfway through in Matthew's Gospel, and he starts out by telling us how not to pray. Sometimes it's nice to be told how not to do something. He says, when you are praying, do not heap up empty praises as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him pray then in this way our father in heaven may your name be revered as holy may your kingdom come may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. You'll notice a couple things there. First of all, we don't have for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That was added on a bit later by the early church as part of the prayer, and it's not part of the way that Catholics pray the Lord's Prayer. Also, you notice that in the Bible, it says debtors and not trespasses. So saying debtors is the correct way. No, that's not right. I'm not going to say that. <laughs> we'll get into that later on as we go on in the sermon series, why, why we have different versions of the Lord's Prayer. So that's pretty much the prayers we have today. There are six petitions, that is, things that we're asking God to do in the prayer. And over the next six, six weeks, we'll get into those. But before we do, I want to say just a th- something about prayer in general. And it's this. Prayer is not, as you heard, about telling God things that God doesn't already know. And it's not about trying to convince God to do something that God wasn't already going to do or not do, based on the eloquence or sincerity of your prayer. Prayer is less about informing God about what we want, and more about shaping our own hearts and minds to want what God wants. Because God's primary way of answering prayer is to work in and through us and other people to do what God wants to get done. It's not the only purpose, but that's the primary purpose of prayer. Or as Adam Hamilton puts it so well, we become what we pray. So, we best learn or relearn how to do it. And that's why we have the Lord's Prayer. It starts with the words, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you know, every time I say it out loud, I stress that word, our. Our. Because it's not my Father I'm praying to, it's our Father I'm praying to, and we're praying to, because we're all in this together. You and me, whether or not we're in the same place at the same time, saying the same words. In our relationship with God, we're always together with one another and with every other believer in Christ throughout the ages. We're joined in a web of prayer and of communion with God through the Holy Spirit. We are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we are one in prayer. And that's why every single petition, all six of them, in the Lord's Prayer is in the plural form not singular. So we say our Father, and when we do, I know some people hesitate, you know, with that word Father in the prayer for lots of reasons. One is that not everyone had or has a very good or a very healthy relationship with their own earthly father. I like how the uh, theologian Roberta Bondi talked about her own struggle with this in her own book about the Lord's Prayer. She writes, I grew up in the 40s and 50s with a loving but authoritarian, perfectionistic father who left the family when I was 11. Like many other people, having transferred to God, the father, all the pain I felt around my human father, I simply couldn't get past the father language of the prayer to reach God. I was hurting so much and so mistrustful of God. So for a long time, she would substitute the word parent for God in the Lord's Prayer, which is fine. I mean, if changing a word to a prayer is what's going to bring you closer to God, then that's great. I prefer to use the word Father in the Lord's Prayer for lots of reasons. But at the same time, I know that the God who created the whole universe is so far beyond any limited human conception of gender that we might have and it has comes nowhere close to understanding the totality of who god is beyond gender and inclusive of all gender what's more jesus doesn't teach us to address god as father in order to stress that god is male he's pointing to the intimate relationship the nature of the divine human relationship in fact Jesus uses over and over again in the Gospels this Aramaic word for father Abba you may have heard that word before Abba which we can translate as daddy or Papa and he tells us that not a sparrow falls without your heavenly Papa knowing about it in fact your Abba is so close to you that he even knows the number of hairs in your head and even knows when you're losing hairs on your head, too, like me. And that's close. In fact, it's especially close when you compare how Jesus is talking about God the Father and using this language. It's especially close when you compare how he talks about God to how Greeks and Romans understood their gods as as sometimes nasty, malevolent, unconcerned about human beings, or even the Jewish people of his time, a lot of whom just basically thought of God as somebody you got to please by doing all the rules and doing all the stuff right. Not everybody, but a lot of people, that was kind of the general understanding of God as distant, but not to Jesus. But you know, sometimes uh, it, it helps to get a fresh perspective on the use of a well-known phrase if it gets old or you're having some trouble with it it's helpful to get another perspective which is why i like the maori translation of the lord's prayer in the new zealand prayer book where the word father is expressed like this eternal spirit earth maker pain bearer life giver source of all that is and all that shall be father and mother of us all loving god who is in heaven I think that gets pretty close to what Jesus is talking about. Although for me, it does lose that sense of um, the tradition that we have, which we maintain in our how we say the Lord's Prayer. Which brings us, of course, to the second part of the petition, which is the word heaven. What do we mean by heaven? Well, there's so much one could say. <laughs> I think most of us were taught at some point in our life that heaven is some place up there or out there somewhere where dead souls go after they die. Um, but that's really not the biblical concept of heaven. That's something that was created over time and as Christianity grew and was mixed with a lot of Greek and Roman understandings of philosophy and things like that. That's not the biblical concept. I won't get into it in much detail, but the ancient Hebrew worldview. World understood the earth as the center of the entire universe. The land, the earth, was surrounded by water, not just around it, but everywhere. Below the land, this is a flat earth, below the land was the realm of the dead. You may have heard the word Sheol before. Sheol was the realm of the dead, and on top of Sheol was even more water, which in the Hebrew worldview was called the deep deep and above the land was a great dome in the sky where the sun and the moon and the stars were located and beyond that dome in the sky was even more water conceived of as the forces of chaos that god kept at bay from destroying creation you might remember the noah story about that he controlled it also by letting just enough rainfall to nourish the land So in this sense, heaven described everything between the land and the dome above and the deep below. It was the unseen atmosphere, the air we breathe, the place where the birds of the air can fly. It was distinct from the earth, which was the visible, physical, material world we live in. So when we say, our Father who art, or is, In heaven, we are saying that God exists all around us and within us. That is, God's realm is everywhere. Not just out there, up there. Which brings us to another meaning of heaven in the Bible, which is as God's realm or kingdom. It's wherever everything exists as it was meant to be as God wants it to be. That's why the phrases the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are often used interchangeably in scripture. Heaven is wherever God's will is done where injustice, poverty, cruelty, violence, disease, disorder, and pain are all erased. And we'll get to this more next week. When we talk about thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven but for now i want to move on to what we mean when we say hallowed or some people say hallowed hallowed be thy name what does that mean well what often gets missed in english translations of the word hallowed is is that hallowed is not an adjective about god's name Now, like, hey god your name's hallowed that's not It might sound that way, but that's not how it really is in the original Greek. It's not an adjective. It's actually an imperative verb in Greek. The word hagio, a plea that we make to God to hallow God's own name. Hallow is not a word we use very much anymore, is it? You know, some of us might say from time to time that somebody is walking on hallowed ground or something. We, you know, use the word in Halloween, which simply means the evening before All Hallows Day. But what is a hallow? (laughs) What is a hallow? It is someone or something holy or sanctified, like a saint or a sanctuary. It's being set apart for God's own purpose. A place or a person in which God is present and active and alive. And in the Lord's Prayer then, we are asking God to make God's own name holy. Of course, God has many names in the Bible. We could go through them. There's Al Shaddai or the Almighty, Elohim, Adonai in Hebrew. There's Yahweh, which is how God answers when Moses asks him on the mountain, what is your name? And God responds, but That word itself is so sacred, so holy, that uh, observant Jews will not even pronounce it or say it out loud. But what's in a name? Well, in a court of law, we might say, I'm trying to clear my name. Or when our reputation is questioned, we might say something like, all I have is my name. And that gets kind of close to the stress the Bible gives us on God's name. Part of it has to do with God's own reputation. So how does God hallow God's name? Well, it brings me back to what I said earlier about prayer, what it's mainly about. It's not about getting God to do what we want. It's about our own hearts and minds being shaped to want what God wants and to do what God wants to get done. So in the Lord's prayer we are asking God to work in and through us to make God's name holy to honor God's reputation to participate in God's work to live in such a way that when uh, that shows God's love and beauty and mercy and justice present in our lives when other people see us when other people look for us we are the best reference that God has about God's holiness, and love, and mercy, and justice. So the question I wanna leave with you today is this. How are you hallowing God's name? How are you hallowing God's name? In your thoughts, your actions, your words, how do you show that the spirit of Jesus is alive and active in you. And how do we do it as a church too, especially now in a culture, you know, where so many people don't have a very high opinion of the church or organized religion in general for lots of good reasons. What are we doing or not doing to either honor or to denigrate God's name, God's reputation? You know, a word you come across a lot in, come across a lot in Scripture is, uh, you find it especially in John's Gospel, is the word glorify, or glorified, or glory. It means more or less the same thing as hallow, to, to make something holy, to, to be cognizant or aware of the presence of God, the glory of God, to praise God and to be open to God in your own life, to become a vessel for the outpouring of divine love and mercy, glorify which reminds me of a song we used to sing when I was a kid in church youth group. And if you know it, I invite you to join in with me as well. And it goes like this. In my life, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In my life, Lord, be glorified today. The next verse is at your church. So let's sing that together. In your church, Lord, be glorified, be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today nice you learned a new song today actually an old song but you know that's what we're doing when we're saying the lord's prayer we are asking god by saying our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name we are saying in our own lives make yourself present make yourself visible let us be active let us be part of your mission of your ministry let us hallow let us give glory let us bring joy to god and to god's creation and all god's people however we can today and every day of our lives in jesus name amen